Did you see, um, I posted it in the Gundam thread, but the Fathom Events trailer for Char's counterattack? Oh, uh, uh, it's like it's like Amuro and Shar yeah. are here to save the world from nuclear war, and I'm like, well, Amuro is it's like I don't know about Shar. <laughs> Amuro and Shar are back for the ultimate showdown to save the world from nuclear peril. Gundam 40th anniversary celebration: Shar's counterattack, remastered and featuring an exclusive interview with franchise creator Yoshiyuki Tomino. In select movie theaters, December 5th only. I think Char's more into the causing nuclear war business, but yeah, yeah. whatever. Whatever. Semantics. Fake news. Listen, Dad, are mobile suits more important to you than human beings? <sighs> it almost looks like this mobile suit is shaking in terror. It's a mobile suit! Amuro, is that you inside that mobile suit? Let's just see. Let's test the reaction time of your brand new mobile suit. You alone are responsible for the mobile suit now. Is that understood? These are the days when you wish your bed was already made. It's just another mobile suit. Monday. Wish it was Mobile suit. In war, to keep the upper hand, you have to think two or three moves ahead of the enemy. Hey guys, welcome back to another goofarific episode of Fanholes Mobile Suit Mondays. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Derek. Derek WC. I'm going to be one of your hosts for this evening, and I am not alone. I am joined by two count them. Two of my fellow fan holes. Why don't you guys give a shout out and let everybody know who's here tonight? This is no Michael, Derek. This is no Michael. <laughs> this is Justin, and my brain waves are low. Your brain waves are low, Justin. They're just you know, Amaro, in, in, in the other in the other dub. It's like Justin, your brain waves are distressingly low. Like that's the horror's like really really freaked out, but yeah. So <laughs> so tonight we are discussing another episode in our ongoing coverage of the original Mobile Suit Gundam anime. We are currently on episode twelve, which is titled "The Threat of Zeon," and the original Japanese air date was June twenty third, nineteen seventy nine. And if you're following along as to the English Ocean Group dub that was airing on Cartoon Network that was released August 7th, 2001. And we finally get an intro setting up the show in the One Year War, but it's actually like changing up now. It's not exactly the same kind of intro that we've been seeing for the last like 11 episodes. And it's it's primarily focused on setting up the Zabi family. And it's still giving you like a, a Cliff Notes version of, of the war, but it, it's more focused on setting up that you know, White Base escaped Side 7 and it's made its way to Earth and that they're currently trying to cross the Pacific Ocean. And then we get a title card that says The Threat of Zeon. 
And then we open on the funeral proceedings of Garmazabi in Zoom City with a gigantic memorial photo of his face among the thousands of attendees. And within the palace, we see Degwin Zabi quietly listening to a recording of Garma's when Cassilia interrupts this private moment to get Degwin to make his required appearance at the ceremony. Degwin, Girin, Dozel, and Cassilia walk out on the stage before the crowd and take their seats as the crowd chants the Zabi family name. So this is something I wanted to talk to you guys about. Like, uh, I guess a Japanese wake typically features like a portrait of the deceased. And in this case, mm-hmm. they, they set up like the portrait of Garma. But to me, I'm kind of like, well, that's kind of turned up to 11. I mean, it's, you know, it's huge. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's really, really big. And, and so I was just wondering, because like, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I was trying to think of it because I'm like, I've never been to a funeral where this was a common practice. But I mean... I, I've seen Japanese shows and TV shows and, and, and movies and things like I I'm familiar with the practice. And then the other thing I was thinking of is I, I, I feel like this is something I've seen even in in our culture when it applies to like police officers or military, you know, like people that died in the line of duty, kind of like Garma, you know, like Garma was a soldier and he's a fallen soldier. And so, like, to me, it, it kind of reminds me of like sometimes they have these you know, the, 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 you know, uh, an officer died in the line of duty and you can see like all his fellow officers and they've got, you know, a portrait of him, you know, dressed to the nines in his dress uniform and that kind of thing. So that's kind of what I was, was thinking of when I, when I saw this moment. So I guess what I was going to ask you guys was like, what, what do you think of these cultural aspects that are attributed to Garma's funeral in terms of the Gundam universe? Like, like, do we, do we ever, like, I was trying to remember cause you know, I'm old, my memory's spotty and stuff. Like, do do they ever do anything like this again? Like, is there ever a funeral of this scale with, like, a giant... Like, is there, like, a giant photo of, you know, I don't know, freaking Master Asia or something that I'm forgetting because I haven't <laughs> seen, you know, the shows in a long time? Like, is there ever something equivalent to this in, like, the UC timeline or any of the Gundam shows after this? Or is this... Is this strictly like zombie centric? Like the zombies are all about themselves, and it's this big ceremony and dog and pony show to galvanize the the troops and all that stuff. Like that—that's kind of what I was debating or wondering in my head because I I can't think of it, but I thought I I thought I'd throw it out to you guys and see if you you could come up with anything. I don't think so. Like not to the best of my memory. I think if they did that, like it would be a in homage to this scene, mm, basically. Okay. okay. The only thought I had when I was watching this scene was instead of it being a static photo, I kind of wish it was like a gif of him like twirling his hair or something. <laughs> and I started laughing and I had to like stop and go back because yeah. I was like distracting myself. Yeah, yeah that's funny. But yeah, I, I hadn't thought about, you know, what you were bringing up, the different cultural aspects of funerals and displaying images to honor someone like that. Like, I think I've only been to one funeral where they had like, I think they had like a, a digital projector on the wall and they okay. were like projecting various pictures. But that was like, you know, that was a, you know, a young person who kind of died well before their time. Mm, and that was okay. the only time I've ever been to a funeral or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, my intent is not to let it get too morbid or anything, but I mean, I yeah. was, I was thinking of these things, you know, as you're going through the, the, the moments of like the funeral and people dealing with, losing a loved one like for me i think like that moment with degwin when he's listening to like 
the the old recording of Garma. Like, I mean, I I can get personal and just say like. I, I've listened to recordings of loved ones who have passed away, like after they passed away, like that kind of thing, like where where it was one of the only things I sort of had left, you know, like so. I mean, I, I guess uh, is there anything in this entire funeral sequence, like this proceeding for Garmazabi, like is there anything like that for you guys that stands out, like where you're like, oh, this, you know this is similar to something I went through or, or a shared experience or something like that? About two years ago, I was going through an, an old drawer that I hadn't cleaned out in a long time, and like buried way in the back was an old audio cassette tape. And I was like, huh, I wonder what's on this. And the first side was completely blank. The other side, it was like recording of me when I was, I don't know, maybe five or six, and I was my grandmother was reading me a book. It was like ABC, you know, A is for Apple, B is for Bear, mm. that kind of stuff. After that, it was like she was kind of talking to me, kind of like walking me through it. She was like, what did you do today? Where where did we go? And what did you see? And I was like, oh, I saw a duck and all this stuff. And then you could hear me like I ran away. And then she was like, you know, kind of like she's like, stop. You're being ugly. You're going to get in trouble. And then I guess the tape player was left on recording. And then it was like, you could hear someone like come in the door and then, then it was like this conversation between my grandparents. They were talking about like stuff that needs to be doing, paying bills and stuff. I mean, I had no memory of any of this, but the thing that struck me was like, they, they've been dead almost 30 years now. And like, I, you know, hearing that, like it made me realize, like I didn't know what their voices sounded like any mm, until mm. I heard that. And I just kind of like, um, I was just struck by that. Yeah, sometimes sometimes I think that's why maybe they, you know, the, the notion of that huge picture or whatever, like sometimes there's those aspects where sometimes I'd, I'd like stare at a picture and it's it was almost like I couldn't see it really. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like you could, it's not yeah. like I was blind, but like I just looked at it where it looked like something about it looked different after the fact. Like I couldn't, I couldn't see it. It didn't look like I'd remembered it or it didn't, I, I, it, it, it's kind of like a strange sensation, but it's just like, I had to like really stare at it to see it, if that makes any sense. But, but yeah, it, there's, it, it makes me think of that, that friend that died and you see pictures of him. I don't know, maybe, I mean, he's been dead almost 10 years now, God, but he, he, if you see pictures from, of all of us together and stuff, and you're just like, at first you're just like, wow. Oh, it's like it's weird mix of emotions. It's like, well, this this is a picture of a really great time. I remember that day, you know, we went out and ate and had a great time and got drunk and we were just goofing off and shit. And then there there's like a melancholy layer attached to it. It's like you see that picture and you're happy, but then there's that twang of of sadness and you're because you're like, oh well, you know, you think when that picture was taken, you're like, well, he he died like three months later or something and it's just it's just this weird mix of you know happy remembrance with sorrow yeah and that, that's kind of what i i mean it's weird i don't know if i if if i placed my own thoughts and feelings onto degwin zabi but i mean i i kind of feel like that's kind of the moment he's having like it's weird he's not very expressive when he's listening to the recording of garma but you you mm -hmm. get the sense like there is an aspect of you know, he, he's having a remembrance, there's a fondness, and there's also maybe a, 
a sense of pride, you know, like the, the listening to what he's saying, you know, he's talking about, well, I don't want to just, you know, become an admiral because, because, you know, because my, my dad's in charge. Like I want to earn, you know, earn my position and, and I want people to respect me for my actions, not the family I come from and all that other kind of stuff, you know, whether, whether that's, uh, you know, ultimately true or sincere or whatever, I guess it's kind of irrelevant to the point of the scene. Right. But, but there is that, I don't know, to me, it's, it's like, I, I kept watching that scene going, well, he doesn't, he doesn't really smile, but I felt like there was some kind of pride or something. Yeah. To, to that sequence I, that, that, that it was something, it was a private moment that Cecilia kind of interrupted and, and, and it was almost like, you know, if, if he had the opportunity, it was like he, he could have had a little smile to himself, but he just didn't get the moment, you know? Yeah. We talked a little bit about this, you know, when it was reported to him that Garma died and, you know, they made, they made a big deal of like him, like dropping his cane or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I kind of feel like, his whole mindset it's like that show a kind of mindset of like men are strong and brave and they mm. don't cry and show emotion like him dropping his cane was like kind of him losing control like in a public setting or at least around you know people under his direct command yeah. but like in private i mean he's such a strong person that even in private the most he can do is just listen to this old recording and look at it his son and you know just watch it and um, take it in or appreciate it and he still he still has that kind of gruff attitude and exterior built up where he's kind of he's remembering his son but he doesn't want to show the emotion like visibly I guess yeah yeah oh I can remember when my grandfather died my grandmother got up there behind a podium and called for the death of his enemies <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> it was very passionate um, yes the only thing i can compare it to is like you know like my grandmother died like last year and like mo uh, most of the like wakes i've been to like you know the the funeral home will ask you for a bunch of like family photos and stuff and they'll make a little collage of them and put them like you know right be like before you enter the room so people can you know look at a collage of old family photos with the like deceased or whatever so maybe on a smaller scale i guess that's like that mm. like i don't know if like you know the zombies would have a bunch of family photos but they've got that huge like you know portrait of garma at least i think it's them sending a statement just because they're the zombies and they're powerful they're like yeah. look yeah here's this huge picture of her son like derek said it's like maxed out to 11 look at this giant picture of her son in the prime of his life, he's young, he was up and coming, and he was taken away from us, and I'm going to give a speech that's going to stoke the fires, and we're going to go out there and avenge him. Like that's, that's, to me, that's the whole goal for that. What picture. what they what they should have done is like they should have kept the giant picture, but instead made it a giant like gif of him twirling his little like strand of hair like over and over again. Like <laughs> what like I I guess another thing I was thinking of is maybe like the historical aspect of of like because it seems like one thing that typically happens whether there's a photo or not involved like a lot of people get portraits done of like a family member who served and and died in the line of duty like even now i think you can go to I, I don't know what the site is exactly, but you can go to like a website where people can get put on a list to have 
you know, their, their son or daughter that served in the military and get a portrait of them commissioned, you know, like that type of thing. So like part of me started to wonder then, like, is this, is this like a gigantic photo of Garma or is it a gigantic portrait of Garma? Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, is it something where, you know, it's like the Sistine Chapel of the Zabi family where, you know, they had their, you know, Michelangelo of, of, of side three come in and, and do this, you know, grandiose portrait as opposed to like just a gigantic electronic photo, you know, like that kind of thing. That was something else I thought of. And then I guess I was kind of wondering, cause I don't know too much about it, but I mean, I imagine it was probably done as far back as there were wars, but you know, I'm just, I'm wondering of like the historical significance of either, you know, the, the, the cultural, aspect of having a photo at a wake or or having a, a portrait made for a fallen soldier like you know i don't know you know exactly when that started you know like i don't know if it's just been a tradition that's been sort of passed down for you know generations or whatever but that that's something that occurred to me too i know i know you're always reading a lot of history books and stuff like that i don't know if if you have anything extra to impart on that aspect of it justin it makes me think of the opposite kind of like in the Victorian era when photography was just becoming like really popular and I guess not just something for rich people to play around with and have their portrait taken. Like if th this will sound morbid to us like in you know 2019, but back then, like if a young child died, even like a baby, they would take a picture of it in the casket and that's like that was something that was culturally accepted and it was for the family and they didn't think it was weird or unusual at all but like i i remember I, i've seen these pictures and they kind of weird me out i mean you think about it like this is like you know two-year-old or younger and they're just it's a picture of a dead baby in the casket and it's just really bizarre and it, i don't know it just makes me think of like how attitudes towards death have changed it would be something that's weird to like if you were to do that today i think people would be like that's really weird dude i i mean i think part of the reason why that took place though was because of economical factors i mean i don't i don't think it was like it's it's not like you know when when we had polaroids or, or now the way you can take you know a digital photo at the drop of a hat on your phone like like taking a photo was like a huge ordeal and an expensive process so it it seems like you, you would only do it on some sort of monumentous occasion and then when you think about it like what's more monumentous than than leaving right like so so that that was that i mean you know it, it, if you look at the context of it right like that's that's why those things took place when they did i guess i'll i'll get back into the story and everything but from from this from the funeral we cut to a zeon zanzibar cruiser where we're introduced to lieutenant commander ron barral uh force commander lady crowley Haman, and rawl's right hand man lieutenant junior grade clamp clamp informs rawl that he's located the white base which is currently making its way over the pacific ocean which raises all kinds of questions with me but i'm not going to get too much into that rawl squadron is entering the earth's atmosphere along with some accompanying komosai capsules rawl is not one to ignore orders like direct orders from admiral dozel zabi to avenge the fallen garma and so he's resolved to go after the trojan horse 
Meanwhile, Amuro is making repairs to the RX-78 spare computer in his quarters. Frau Bo enters his quarters with Haro to bring Amuro a meal, and Haro expresses concerns about Amuro's mood and brainwaves being low. Frau Bo shoos Haro away to leave Amuro to his work and meal. Meanwhile, on the bridge, Sela has noticed thrust loss on one of White Base's engines. Bright already peeved that the engines weren't able to be properly maintained under the recent combat conditions, explodes in anger, and he tells Kika, Letts, and Katz, who have entered with a vacuum under the auspices of quote-unquote helping, to get off the bridge. Bright's had enough, and he tells Mirai he's taking a break, but before he leaves, he stops, kneels down to apologize to Kika, Letts, and Katz for his earlier outburst. While Let's and Cats are on their way to becoming men and seem to actually understand, Kika is still fairly indignant to Bright's apology, sticks out her tongue at him as he departs the bridge. One day, Kika, when you're older, men may actually encourage that behavior, but for right now, you kind of look like a little brat. He doesn't get to relax too long, though, because Rumbarol and his fleet are spotted, and the ship is quickly called to alert. So yeah, I, I, I'm going to stop here and just ask, is this Bright's, like, you know, shut up, Wesley moment, where he's like, get out! Get off of my fucking bridge, you idiots! Like, yeah. yeah. They meant well. I mean, I don't know how you... Uh, is this a space vacuum? That was kind of my question. I mean, the, the deck <laughs> is metal, right? So how... Uh, I don't know. Was it a vacuum? Was it some kind of, like, space, like, polisher? Like, you're going to polish the deck plates? I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, they... Either way, they were trying to be helpful, and they just they just came on the bridge at the wrong moment and got yelled at for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's essentially what happened. I mean, I mean, to me, I I think you know, did did Kika kind of overreact a little bit? Like, is she doing like you know fake woman bullshit at like a young age? Because I mean, she she howls and screams in whatever dub you watch. If you watch the Japanese language version, oh my god, it's even worse, right? And then it's like immediately after he apologizes and leaves the room, the 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 waterworks factory immediately shuts off. Like it goes to the off switch. So I'm just kind of like, I don't know how sincere all that is either. So it's like, I mean, he, I think Bright gets it. Like he he knows that's why he's taking a break. He knows that he shouldn't have snapped at them, and that everything is getting to him just as much as it's getting to everybody else. That's why he's like, I'm going to go have a moment. I'm going to compose myself. We all need a break from this stuff. Otherwise I wouldn't have snapped at the kids. I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, this is just my vantage point, but I think let's and cats, they get it right. But, but Kika is more into herself probably, you know, and, and just wanted to make a little scene over it all, you know, and it's like, okay, fine. But, you know, like, like you said, they meant well, they usually always mean well, they're good kids, you know, but it's just, you know, that, that they're occasionally a little bratty as far as that goes. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's, you know, sometimes it's understated. I think a lot is how much pressure bright is under, and I think it just because he handles it better than, say, like Amaro, who like, you know, obviously he's the main character. So his like, you know, trauma and his pressure is like very dramaticized and very like for like thrust into the into the forefront. But 
you know, Bright Bright probably has even more responsibility than Amaro does. And he like he, he you know, he he's a military guy. So, I mean, he's probably disciplined enough to handle it. But, you know, he, even for, you know, he's friggin 19 years old and commanding like, you know, an experimental like, you know, battleship carrying like a crew of mostly amateurs and civilians. So like he's under enormous pressure. So I think like, you know, the fact that this is the scale of outburst he allows himself to have is probably a, a testament to, you know, how like under wraps he has like himself. Yeah. And I, I think it sets up like the beginnings of, of Mirai and, and bright having that, the, the, the future relationship that they'll come to have, because you, you kind of say that you think, we don't or people don't realize the burdens he's under, but she does like she comes in, she talks to him for a second and she even kind of mentions like, like you're, you're under a lot of pressure. Right. And, 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 and I think that level of insight, it, you know, kind of explains, you know, why they have the level of interpersonal relationship that they go on to have, you know, because she's, she's conscious of it, you know, like she's sensitive to it and, and, and she's not, you know, uh, I guess, unlike maybe Kika in that instance, she's not oblivious to it, you know? So, and then there's, there's uh, a certain uh, amount of, uh, you know, I guess respect you can have for somebody like that. So back in zoom city, Garma's casket is brought onto the stage and Cassilia asks Garen and Dozel what has become of Char. When Garen answers that he's returned home, Cassilia signals to one of her men and whispers some orders which they intend to carry out immediately. On the battlefront over the Pacific Ocean, Ron Baral's fleet opens fire on the White Base. Unfortunately, due to the engine trouble, the White Base cannot outrun their attackers. Bright pulls a Mutara Nebula and orders Mirai to move the White Base into the cloud formation which is currently enveloped in a thunderstorm and will give them cloud cover. Mirai and the kids were raised on a colony without any climate change, so they have no idea that the thunderstorm isn't some newfangled Xeon super weapon as they cower in a corner. As Amuro looks out the window, the thunder triggers post-traumatic flashbacks of Isolina and the crashing Gao. On the Zanzibar, the soldiers panic at what they believe is the Federation's new super weapon, but Rambaral knows what's up with the weather and assures them and Haman that it is just a natural occurrence on Earth. Mirai lands the white base on a small cluster of islands. Ryu rushes to Amuro's quarters to get him to suit up and head out in Gundam, but discovers Amuro curled up in his bed with pupilless white eyes representing a blank stare of shell shock. Ryu is forced to slap him back into the real world, and Amuro then appears to be back in the game as he suits up to board Gundam, but finds himself struck with a bout of claustrophobia once his helmet is secure. And then we cut to the commercial break. Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's for all mankind, a super friends podcast, a read through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run. Plus a few surprises. 
hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my super friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. And then we're back from the the commercial break. Do uh, I guess? Uh, do you? I, I guess there's a lot that sort of goes on in that sequence and everything. I mean, we we've been introduced to Rambaral. Rambaral's already kind of hot and heavy into attacking White Base and everything like that. And then we're we're sort of seeing the first instances of Amaro dealing with what I'd call like post traumatic stress, right? Like that there's there's that, you know, famous moment of him, you know, kind of with the, you know, the, the pupilless eyes, I guess, you know. And so I, 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 I guess, are there any things that you guys, like, kind of want to deal with as far as some of the stuff we've seen in this, in these last couple of moments? And you can, you can really see how, like, I guess, revolutionary this was for a series at the time, because, you know, you would think all the, you know, mecha pilot protagonists like at this time would, you know, would never have these moments mm. of, you know, you, like you said, post-traumatic stress or like, you know, suffering the consequences of defeating the enemy and like, you know, just constantly being on edge all the time in like a war zone. So, you know, it's it's a very, you know, like a very mature take on it, I guess. As it, well, for the time, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think even now, I mean, it's, there, there's not too many. I mean, there, it, it's not like like what you're saying. I mean, th- this is definitely a a textbook definition of an example of something that would be considered real robot genre, right? Like, like you said, if if this was, you know, Rydine, he you wouldn't have like the lead character curled up in a ball. And and kind of, you know, reliving sort of past trauma, you know, because a, a thunderstrike triggered it. Right. Like that wouldn't be what what you'd be dealing with. You know, it, it, it'd be, you know, the rinse, repeat, you know, type, you know, super robot thing where, you know, the, the robot gets, you know, executed at the end of every episode and everybody laughs at the end and winks and, you know, the little dog's happy and everything's hunky dory. Whereas this, you know, there. They're, they're basically kind of and, and, and it, the the thing that is interesting is, you know, depending on what version you watch, they all kind of refer to it as something different. But I mean, essentially, to me, it's it's he, he's he's dealing with post-traumatic stress, you know, like that. So, you know, I, I think in the synopsis, I refer to it as shell shock, you know, or, you know, but but they, I mean, they call it different things. But, you know, it's like I, I forget. But then, like, I think in the Japanese version, I think Ryu says it's like you know, newbie syndrome or rookie syndrome, you know, like this kind of like he's, he's, he's green, you know, like type thing, you know, but I mean, I, I think it all is tantamount to the same instance as far as that goes, that, that everything that Amaro has been doing to this point is, is pretty much catching up to him, you know? Yeah. I think this is the part where it gets real for Amaro. I mean, we've seen him under pressure and, stress before but we've also seen his kind of shitty attitude on display but i think this is the point where it like it's really for reals now like it is starting to affect him like constantly being under stress i mean the beginning of the episode it's basically like 
Frau Bo is reminding him, and he's like, you need to eat. And he's like, oh, yeah, I should eat. And he's, like, sitting in his room alone working on the, like, what was it, the Gundam's computer or yeah. something? And it's like, that's the job that only he can do on board the ship, right? Like, if he doesn't do it, like, that doesn't get done. Yeah, nobody else can do it. And you can see, like, even at the beginning of the episode, just how zoned out he is. And then to further see him just, like, curled up in bed, like, his eyes are just gone. He's just got this blank stare going on. You're just like, okay, this, like, it's it's real and it's getting, I mean, if, we were, if it was the real world, like, it would be extremely dangerous, too. And I think I think the the PTSD is probably combined. This is like one of these cocktails where it's it's combined with being overworked. You know, like yeah. like the, the, there's that aspect where you you might not be in a life or death situation, but you, you know people can easily get so caught up in their work they forget to eat, they forget to breathe, they forget to live and love and laugh and all those things right and so so if you if you become so overworked that you lose focus on everything else then what that ultimately results in is something else they'll they'll coin which is burnout right so i mean i mean part of that part of that glazed look in his eye i mean you know yes i i think a large part of it is post-traumatic stress but also probably a large part of it is burnout you know, it's just, you know, there, there's, there's too much going on. Right. And, and they, like, they, just like Bright says, they, they all kind of need a break, you know, like, and, and of course, since they're in wartime, you know, of course they're not going to get that. Right. Because they, they have to make do with, with, you know, the, the scenario that, you know, the cards they're dealt. Right. But that's, that's something that, you know, is, is actually impacting the, the characters in, you know, as, as, as much of an innovative, realistic way as they were allowed to portray at the time. What do you, what do you guys think of like the whole, like, no, like, I love how everyone, like everyone experience has that reaction to like experiencing lightning for the first time, like thunder and lightning. Like, like, uh, I know like so they say like some of the colonies have like climate controls and stuff, but I'm sure that only extends to maybe rain. So like, w I, I think that's a cool, like, I don't know how to put it. Like, a, a, like addition of like texture yeah. to the, like, yeah. like, uh, like goings on basically that none of them know what lightning is or, well, Ron Baral knows what it is, but even he says like, Oh, I've never, you know, experienced it before, but it's a natural phenomenon. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a good moment. It's, it's a, it's a good moment in terms of, like you said, setting up context and it, it and it separates, you know, the space noids from, from people who are native to earth, you know, and, and that, that's something, it, what, what's interesting is, Amaro is triggered by the th lightning and thunder, but he knows what it is. Like he's lived on Earth, so he's not, you know, he he's not the person freaking out, thinking it. You, you know what cracks me up is in the um, in the uh, movie dub. I think Frabo's like, is this some new Xeon ray gun, <laughs> like or whatever, like something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're 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 not gonna, you know, it's kind of how they were raised, right? Like, I guess I was trying to think of like the the scientific 
implications of that too it's like there's got to be reasons for you, you know what i mean like like weather just doesn't happen for no reason right like so it's funny that if they're living in a climate controlled environment you know it's like oh well you, you know your thought is oh well maybe they need rain to grow crops or something i don't know like what, whatever whatever the rationale is so then, then it's scheduled you know like like i don't i don't know it's funny it's like it's like there's certain amount of uh naivete for the people that react to the weather in this scene but i bet there'd be an aspect of arrogance too you know the the aspect that you can you can control like the climate you know like like and i guess literally they can on a space colony but then it must be like an like an awesome moment to be in the presence of something you have literally no control over right because it's it's nature. You know what I mean? Like, like, it's not like you can tell the, the thunderstorm to shut off, right? Like, it's like, it's like you literally, it's, 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 it's probably, you know, I'm not trying to get like super deep, but it's, a, it's a, you know, a parallel to some of the scenarios white base finds itself in, right? Because they, they can't control the tide, right? That they're facing against this onslaught of, of Xeon soldiers who are going to constantly confront them you know from this point on but you know it's 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 you know it conceivably it's a metaphor you know so one of the komosai sends up a flare as they believe they've spotted the white base Haman mentions she likes it better when rawl is in the battlefield in a mobile suit rambaral then leaves the command center of the zanzibar to suit up and board his MS-07B Goof, and leaves with his wingmen Akus and Kozun Graham in their MS-06F Zaku 2s. When the Komasais begin to run low on fuel, Haman orders them to depart the battlefield. Bright then orders Ryu and Amuro to launch, but Ryu warns that Amuro is suffering from battle fatigue. An out-of-sorts Amuro is thrust into battle and is immediately attacked by Ramba Rawl's goof mobile suit. While Rawl and his wingman gang up on Gundam and attack with the goof's heat rod, Ryu and Hayato back up Amuro in the gun cannon and gun tank. Rawl orders his men to peel off and handle the new players while he goes after the Gundam himself. Amuro loses his bazooka and his shield, but continues to pummel into the goof with Gundam's fists. The Gundam's beam saber is deployed, but is quickly blocked, and then Rawl kicks him back using the power of the goof. When Amuro's team begins to fire on Rawl, he orders his squad to retreat. Haman then orders the Zanzibar to implement its blinders, giving them cover to retreat. So, I guess it's worth mentioning that this is the first appearance of the goof. So I and I'm pretty sure isn't this like one of your and Tony's like favorite mobile suits, Mike? Yeah, like the I I would when I did my list of my top twenty five like mobile suits in Gundam, yeah, the goof was number one. Like it, it and it's like various variants over the years, and yeah, like I I like it. Like it's it's kind of like maybe Shar Zaku was the first like specialized like ace unit we saw in the series, but the goof is really the first unit we we saw that could actually like you know go one on one with the Gundam and like you know hand to hand almost like even Shar kind of had to do like you know hit and run attacks or whatever. But Amaro points out like oh man this has like improved armor and strength so 
like the goof is actually something that can, you know, stand on a somewhat more equal ground with the Gundam. Do you have any thoughts on the the goof in particular, Justin? Like, what do you what do you think of it as a mobile suit and and what basically its role here in this episode? It's uh, it's cool. I like it. I don't know if it would be in my top ten, but I I definitely like it. You know what I like about this episode overall is Rumba Rall. A while back, I sat down and watched like the first five seasons of the original Ninja Turtle series. And as much as I still like it, it got really old having Shredder as the primary antagonist every episode. And this changes up the formula that we've known on Gundam for a while. Like this is not charlating the attack once again. Like we have a new antagonist who has a new mobile suit and who can definitely hold his own against Amuro, and I really like that. Like, I was sitting, like, it's been a while since I watched these episodes, and I was kind of, you know, when I put the disc in today, I was like, when is Rumbaral going to show up? And then I was like, ooh, here he is. Oh, yeah. Because we get, like, this is the beginning of, like, kind of like a a set of episodes where Char's kind of set in the background, and we've got, like, other guys showing up, like, doing the brunt of battle. Like, I, that that's very refreshing. I mean, I love Char, you guys know that, but if it was Char every episode letting me attack for 42 episodes like that would be really old and dull <laughs> he can't like every episode he can't have an excuse like you know hey dren like we'll just say a broken circuit like stop me from winning this time <laughs> it's like my pinky toe it hurts really bad tell tell dozel that's what was up this time he'll start doing some like he'll start doing some like mr satan stuff type stuff like can you imagine char like grabbing his stomach like oh i've got a stomach oh, oh, oh. stomach uh, so before I get into the continued synopsis, I just point out that I, I still have been keeping track of the movie dub. What's interesting about this is the movie dub kind of jumps around a bit, and a, a large portion of this episode is streamlined and is pretty much the conclusion of the first Mobile Suit Gundam, the movie. So... It, it kind of, like, because I think, you know, before when when Degwin first finds out that, that Garma has died and he, he drops his cane, there's some reference to that, even though we don't see it. And that's maybe around the, the one, or one hour 39 mark or whatever. And, like, I guess what they do is, uh, you know, spoilers, but for, for the next episode, it deals a lot with Amaro's mother. And that episode is put in front and then when the thunder and lightning like triggers flashbacks in this episode it's Isolina and, and past battles and things but in in the movie version it, it when he actually sees flashes of his mother as well so it, it kind of it kind of ramps up that aspect to some of the interpersonal things that Amaro's dealing with and I think also it kind of serves as like basically at the two hour mark till the end of the movie, it's this episode and it makes it like this kind of exciting conclusion where it's like you kind of you, you, you excise all the, the stuff with the funeral that we've been cutting back and forth to. And essentially it's just this very tight battle between Romba Rawls fleet and the white base and 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 i think it's a little less cat and mouse and a little more straight on ahead the way they sort of edit it there's there's some there's some new animation when we're dealing with the 
Kieran Zabi's speech and everything like that. The moment where they talk about how Char went home in in the Ocean Group dub, I guess in the the movie dub, they say he rejoined his unit, which, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know that either makes a whole lot of sense to me because he's just kind of chilling, having drinks. So it's like, is that home? Is that his unit? Like, I don't know. And I mentioned, you know, Frau Bo talks about maybe the Zeons have a new kind of ray gun as far as the thunderstorm. One of the things in the dub, we're talking about, you know, different things that can be referred to, you know, the rookie syndrome, battle fatigue. In the in the dub, I think at that point, Ryu is like, Amro's like a zombie, right? You know, like, it's like, okay. You want me to put him down? Yeah, it's like, you want me to put two in the back of the head? Nah, man, nah, just throw him out of the suit. There's some weird things that happen towards the end, and I guess I'll just get into those when I go through the description. So, in Zoom City, Giren gives his famous... Hail Zeon, Zig Zeon speech. This broadcast is being televised throughout Earth and all the space colonies. The crew of the White Base watches while Frau Bo comforts Amuro. Elsewhere, Char also watches with some contempt while having a drink in a bar. And in the Japanese language, in the Ocean Group, you know, there's a moment where Giren says, you know, why did Garma have to die? And of course, Shar answers the TV because he was a spoiled brat. <laughs> In the movie dub, he has kind of a smart Alec line that's very different. He just says, because he was eager to die. And so there's some slight difference there. The the Zigzion speech, there there is some improved animation in the movie version. There's a few extra clips of, I think, Amaro and Giren that, that look a little nicer and everything. There's also a weird moment towards the end of the speech like in in the episodes and the way the japanese language and the dub there's no indication that amuro you know amuro's kind of in as much shock and awe as the rest of the white base crew and he's reflecting on bright's description of the zabi setting up a dictatorship but there's this kind of weird moment in the movie dub kind of like when I guess, you know how, like, in the movie dub, Amuro kind of has that whole early Peter Parker chip-on-his-shoulder kind of attitude where he'll say some smart-aleck things and be like, yeah, I'm supposed to be in Gundam. Like, he's trying to be, like, like a tough guy or something. I don't know. He has these weird moments. And and one of these weird moments is the, the voice actor says that Giren's speech is impressive. And then, and then I think Bright's like, what, what? You think this is impressive, eh? Well, he's a he's a bloody dictator, so get that thought out of your head, Amaro. You know, or whatever. And it, I don't know, it was just, it was kind of like a weird moment to have, because I was like, why would Amaro think, like, it's like, oh, that speech was pretty awesome. <laughs> like, it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't seem to track or line up or anything like that to me, but I just thought I'd mention it as something that was kind of out of context or whatever. So Char is watching in the bar, and then a member of Cassilia's Royal Guard offers to buy Char's next drink, and the commander immediately places him as one of Cassilia's men. Girin ends his speech with a shout of Hail Zion, which the crowd continues chanting. Bright calls the speech a bunch of nonsense designed to turn the Zabi family into a world dictatorship as Sela hangs her head in shame. The episode concludes with White Base flying off into the distance as the cries of the crowd continue to echo on. And, of course, we get the next episode title card, Coming Home, Who Will Survive? 
And that basically concludes the episode, The Threat of Zeon. Do you guys have any other, like, final thoughts on this episode as a whole? Do you have some thoughts on the famous, you know, Zig Zeon speech, like that that whole thing? Because this is a pretty huge moment in terms of of this series and, and Gundam history. As a whole, this is a pretty important episode because, like I said, it further goes down the rabbit hole of just how damaged and exhausted Amuro is becoming. And like I said, we also have a new antagonist who will be, you know, pursuing the white base for a while. Like Char's going to go, like, take a little nap and have a drink for a while and, you know, rest up and getting a change of a antagonist. But yeah, this is a good episode. Yeah, this is like, I think this is a, what do they call like a seminal episode in the series where, you know, obviously a Rambaral is very memorable and important. Um, you know, is, is it, you know, the introduction of the goof and, you know, this is no Zaku boy, no Zaku. <laughs> you know, that every, yeah. Everyone knows that line. Yeah. Like that, that's what jumps to mind when you think of Rambaral. Yeah. Like the, there's a lot of like important moments, like the, the Zabi speech at the end. I remember being like the first time I saw that, I remember being like struck by it because like, like you said in that the, the movie dub, he just says it's impressive, but I, I like his response in like, you know, the, the English, the uh, ocean group dub in the Japanese where he says like, like he's kind of incredulous where he's like, this is the enemy. Like, and like, I, I don't think Amuro like realized the scope of this like war until he saw this basically. Well, I mean, and, and the, the, so, you know, some of the things that Girin says are not, uh, what's the right way to say it? They're, they're not necessarily like, if you just look at it in a pure text-based value, he's not necessarily saying bad things, right? Like he's, he's talking about freeing humanity from oppressors. He's talking about earth, you know, polluting the, the world that they live on because there's a bunch of rich elite there. I mean, he's talking about a lot of things that people today would think are great to get rid of, but yet the visual of it, the imagery of it so evokes Nazi Germany that there's also another ominous vibe coming to it. So whether Amaro is saying he's impressed by it or whether Amaro's incredulous to it and going, this is the enemy? Like, like that, that kind of, I don't know, disconnect to like, oh, they're people just like us that have wants and needs and, 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 and concerns and everything, you know, that, that notion that maybe there's, the, you know, again, the, the sort of real robot genre, it's not about good guys and bad guys. It's just, there's, there's two different armies that, that have their own political agendas and machinations and everything. But yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure you could write a whole dissertation on, you know, Giren Zabi and Adolf Hitler and the parallels and, and all that kind of stuff. And the, the, the aspect of, of, you know, using Garma's death as a way to galvanize his people and everything. I mean, I, and I think also there's a reason, like not only this being a seminal scene in Gundam period, but I, you know, I, I've said it already. But I mean, the 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 fight between Amaro and Rambaral and everything. I mean, it's it's a very engaging, action-packed fight, and there's a reason why they chose to 
have that be the climax of the first Gundam movie, and and it's reflected in this episode as well. You know, it's a it's a it's a good sequence. It's 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 engaging and fast paced, and and it, I think it's very effective. So yeah, I guess I guess that's going to conclude our coverage and our discussion on this episode of Mobile Suit Gundam. If you guys have any other questions, comments, and or concerns, you can email us at fanholespodcast at gmail.com. If you want to check out the backlog of episodes of Fanholes Mobile Suit Mondays, you can check them out over on the fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. You can find the backlog of all of our episodes there. We have a bunch of other spinoff shows. So if you like Mobile Suit Mondays, we hope you consider checking out all of our other shows. We're on all kinds of social media. We're on Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc. We appreciate all the likes, hearts, shares, retweets, feedback that we receive. And until the next time, this is going to be Derek, Derek WC, Zig Zion, signing off. Hey, it's Mike. I have to go now. <laughs> My eyes are all white. And this is Justin. Zig Zion. So Amaro is going to be elected king at the end of this series. <laughs> Who has a better story than Amaro the Broken? Why do you think I came all this way? <laughs> You're a freaking jerk. You're a freaking jerk, asshole. <laughs> Does that mean we're going to catch, like, Salo with a Starbucks coffee cup in one of these scenes? <laughs> Does that mean Kika, Cats, and Let's are her, like, dragons? Oh. <laughs> yes. They lay ruin to everything they touch. Well, like I was saying earlier, that makes Ryu like Hodor. Like he's dragging <laughs> off or around. Like... <laughs> I like, like, you know, like when Ryu's just like, or, or Sayla's trying to talk Amaro, like when he's into, talk to Amaro when he's in the cockpit. And she's like, like, I believe in you, Amaro. Like, you can do it. And Amaro's just like, kind of like, huh, what? And then Bright's like, just launch him. Like, <laughs> Throw him out. <laughs> I can't. It's like, well, we just, like, Amaro just crashed into a mountain. Like, he's dead, right? (laughs) Oh, no, one other minor note. Um, That scene where the goof and the two Zakus get recalled to, like, Rambaral's, like, cruiser, like, they've got that, like, sort of, like, ladder rope that they're all holding on to. And, like, I had a flashback, like, I, I was like, I have a toy of that rope. Like, because it, it, came, it came with, like, one of those, like, play sets that had, like, the, I think it came with a DOP and a, like, a Magella attack tank and a bunch of, like, accessories for your Zaku or whatever. And one of the accessories was that rope. Huh. 
I, I recognized the little triangle like holding thing that Goof was like ha- ha- like hanging on to. So I was like, I have a toy of that rope. <laughs> Maybe my brain waves are low. <laughs> brain waves are low. I'm around, Dinky. The brain waves are low. I'm around. <laughs> I like how you have uh, Amaro's munch face. <laughs> yeah. Eating his sandwiches I... like a good zombie. Yeah, I put I put as my caption says uh, I put his his like dom, dom. almond butter. Oh, it was either going to be that or his like brand face or whatever with the white eyes. Mm. Like, I have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go. Amar um, is out in the crow somewhere in New Type Land or whatever. Like, like. Does that make Ryu like like Hodor? Like he's like. I oh. guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do both die. <laughs> yeah. The um. Carry. Amaro to the Gundam. Does that mean Am- Yeah, he's like, why did you think I came all this way? Does that mean Does that mean Amaro's the fucking uh, pelican or seagull or whatever the fuck in that one scene with Lala? <laughs> I mean, fucking zones out. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I might go see that though. I I, I bought the ticket already, so yeah. You know. it's... I think I'm actually off that week, so. Okay. And I guess it's going to be like Japanese with subtitles, yeah, I think. Yeah. Basically. I was like, oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> I guess it'll be kind of nice because, you know, I, I mean, now I've seen some Gundam things in the theater, but I, I never saw that in the theater. So. Yeah. Like, and I think, yeah, I was kind of like, oh, that w- that would be cool to see that in the theater. It's funny. I read some interview with Tamino about it, like I think because of the anniversary, and uh, like one of the questions was was like, uh, "Did you? Why do you think uh, like Quest Pariah is so hated by the fandom or something?" And like Tamino gave this really Tamino answer where he was like, "Well, of course she is. Like her last name is Pariah. Like I created her to be hated." <laughs> <laughs> It's like, like I thought this was obvious, basically. I, 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 I wasn't trying to spell it out for you, but 